Good morning uh, and welcome to Longwoods Breakfast. I am Matthew Hart. I am the CEO for Longwoods and today's session uh, is going to actually bring us to our summer break. Uh, after today's session, I will let everybody know what, who you can expect to hear from uh, come September. We've had an interesting uh, year. We've had national and international speakers who've represented many aspects of health and healthcare across our country as uh, we continue to explore our, our system and our opportunities in front of us. Uh, today, we are supported by a number of partners who really do make these events possible. Uh, from Cerner, I have uh, Michael Bilianti online. From HealthPro, Leanna Scott is here. From HEROC, I have Catherine Galton. From Medivy, Eric Sande is here this morning. From Medtronic, Jennifer Cox has joined us this morning. From NRC Health, Savesh Castle has joined us this morning. From LBCG uh, Consulting, I have Steve Lowe online with us. And from Roche, Robin Sacon is here. And of course, from Healthcare Excellence Canada, Graham Wilkes is online with us this morning. Uh, a couple quick housekeeping notes before we get started. Um, First of all, all the people I just mentioned above, including our speaker today, are uh, big believers in building their networks. Uh, so please do reach out to them, introduce yourself. Some of the easiest ways may be on LinkedIn, or that sort of idea, or Twitter. Some sort of connection with them is, is always appreciated. Uh, if you have any questions, you can uh, put your questions into the Q&A box at any time, and uh, Jennifer will do her best to address as many questions as possible at the end of her presentation. Jennifer has spoken at breakfast before, so uh, she's familiar with this. Uh, she's been a great speaker and a great partner with Longwoods for many years now. Um, today, she's going to be representing or joining us as uh, the President and CEO for Healthcare Excellence Canada. Jennifer, the floor is yours. Thanks so much, Matt, and a warm welcome to everybody who's joining this morning. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that I'm joining from traditional unceded, unsurrendered Algonquin territory in the place we now call Ottawa. And I'm so fortunate to be able to live, work and play in this fantastic place. And as I've learned more about cultural traditions uh, here, one of the things I've learned about is traditions of meeting and gathering and being able to exchange and share knowledge and learn together. And so hopefully in this now virtual space, with people joining from uh, places coast to coast to coast that have been walked by Indigenous people since the beginning, we have an opportunity to build on uh, those traditions today. And I invite you to take a minute to uh, pop into the chat, introduce yourself uh, so that folks know who's on the line and joining us this morning. And that also gets the chat warmed up for later when we get to the Q&A period or for any time during the presentation if you have comments, thoughts or resources to add. I also have to begin this morning by acknowledging that my heart hurts and all of our hearts should hurt. It's um, from the tragic discovery in BC to the recent hateful attack in London, a lot. And we cannot look away. But with clear eyes stand united with all those who are grieving. Our ideal Canada doesn't exist yet, but our commitment to cultural safety and inclusion to stand together against hate must grow ever stronger. 
because we're not there yet. And that's actually something that I wanted to talk about this morning in general. I start our conversation today from the premise that everyone in Canada wants and deserves excellence in healthcare, and we're not there yet. I was a kid when I first became aware of how much healthcare can vary. My great-grandmother lived in a nursing home. It smelled. We would smuggle her in food she liked to eat. And even as a kid of, I don't know, eight, nine, ten, however old I was at the time, it was obvious she wasn't happy. Her sister lived in a different city in a different nursing home. Didn't smell. When we visited her, she had great afternoon snacks that she'd share. And it was a home that she'd chosen to live in to be with her friends. And look, I was a kid, I had really simple quality measures, but even then it felt incredibly unfair that the best care wasn't available to everyone I cared about. So the question is, why not? And I'm by no means the first to ask that question. Famously, Monique Bégin argued that Canada's health sector is a land of perpetual pilot projects and went on to observe that we seldom move proven innovations, proven projects into stable funded programs and rarely transfer the outcomes of pilot projects across jurisdictions. Bottom line, there are many, many points of light across the country, fantastic innovations that offer true value, but all too often they're only available to those who've effectively won the lottery by living in the area or being a patient in the practice of the innovator. And I'd be willing to bet that all of us on the line today have stories of the innovation with the 10 or 20 that got away. One for me for a long time was virtual primary care. It's an option I've wanted back for me and for others ever since I first experienced it as a patient years ago when I lived in Denmark. I had an eye infection and a few days after a visit to my ophthalmologist, the symptoms hadn't resolved. I called back to her office and learned that she was away for several weeks because you get really long holidays in Denmark. So even though my GP had told me he didn't do eyes, I sent him a secure message to see if he could help. An hour later, I got a response back. Don't worry, he said. I've seen the medication your ophthalmologist prescribed. I've looked up the results from the swab that she did when you were in her office. You don't need to come and see me. I've e-prescribed a different medication. You can go directly to the pharmacy of your choice and pick it up. And boy, was that fantastic. Not only because I didn't have to stumble with blurry eyes into the clinic, but also because I could take my time to translate his message to make sure I understood it well and not have to struggle with a second language while I was already feeling miserable. So that's one example for me, but what's your equivalent? The innovation that you loved, that you believed in, that had demonstrated results, but that makes you grind your teeth because it just didn't make the leap from early adoption seniors to widespread use. And because we all have them, for me, sometimes this cartoon feels a little too real to be funny. Good ideas, promising practices can wither and die once the initial funding dries up, the first innovator moves on, or it fails to spread to the clinic or to the region next door. 
But that doesn't have to be the case. And that's something we've seen in spades during the pandemic. So let me circle back to my earlier example of virtual primary care. And that was an early example in the pandemic, wasn't it? At the beginning, adoption grew more quickly in a few weeks than it had in years. The proportion of in-person visits was cut in half almost overnight. Now, obviously, I wish it hadn't taken a pandemic to open up this option widely, but we now have the opportunity to look forward and optimize its use. And an even more high profile example is COVID vaccination. Yes, built on years of research, but the actual vaccine development trajectory has been remarkably quick. Within just a few months, would we have predicted that even six months ago? More than six in 10 Canadians have already received their first dose. Statistic that's probably being tracked even more closely than some people track sports scores. Now let's acknowledge that the process hasn't been perfect and that vaccination sadly came too late for many. But while there's plenty of work to do both in Canada and globally, as a daughter of a public health nurse and a polio survivor, this example of rapid adoption of innovation at scale is absolutely something to celebrate. And it's not just technological innovations that can scale rapidly in the right circumstances. Pre-pandemic, we were working with hundreds of long-term care homes on really strengthening person-centered care for people living with dementia. So we heard directly from homes affected in the first wave of the pandemic, as well as those who hadn't had an outbreak, but were keen to get ready in case they did. The stories were gut-wrenching. And so quickly, outbreaks in long-term care became the largest patient safety issue in the country. We owe it to all those affected to learn and to do better. With incredible generosity, patients and families, people working in long-term care, public health experts, shared their first wave experiences, enabled us to identify six promising practices for reducing risk, from core infection prevention and outbreak um, response to safe family presence and supporting people who work in homes. We started with just 40 long-term care and retirement homes last summer. Now more than 1,500 have joined together to implement these practices, including every single home in some jurisdictions. Together, they care for more than 180,000 residents. Homes start with a self-assessment and action plan, and then can access support in terms of coaching, virtual learning opportunities, peer-to-peer -peer connections, seed funding, and more. Home by home, acting on pandemic learning. Together. So while it's absolutely true that Canada can be Monique Beger's land of perpetual pilot projects, it's not always and it doesn't have to be. And yet we do also need to acknowledge that success is not guaranteed. In some cases, hard-won improvements implemented over years have eroded during the pandemic. Think about diagnostic and surgical access or policies that recognize that family and other essential care partners are not just visitors, to name a few. We need to sustain proven innovations so that they keep happening. We need to spread them so that they happen elsewhere. 
really identifying the core elements of an innovation that you need fidelity to in order to get results, and those where you absolutely need local adaptation to have success. We also need to scale them so they reach everyone who can benefit. Now, none of this just happens, but we don't always talk about how to make it happen. No, no, it's planned for that either. And some common assumptions are just plain wrong. Let's talk about a couple. From an early age, we learn about hero inventors, the Alexander Graham Bells, the Marie Curies. And indeed, individual inventions can be attributed to a single person, although that often fails to recognize the rich heritage of ideas they're building on or the broad community that made those discoveries possible. But that doesn't work when it comes to spreading and scaling innovation. There, as this group hug piece from the Heart of Healthcare exhibition suggests, it's teams we need, not just individual heroes. Engagement-capable, resilient environments that are culturally safe are where excellence thrives. And that's not a shift that's a short-term project or tactic, certainly not a checklist. It's a new culture. It's a new way of working. And it doesn't just happen in one step. Take, for example, robust engagement with patients and families, truly living nothing about me without me. That takes a sustained effort to enlist and prepare patients, to ensure leadership support and strategic focus, and to engage staff. Pre-pandemic, much of this work happened face-to-face. And it's a commitment that's proven fragile during the pandemic in a number of places. At the point of care and in policy development, there's work to do. At the point of care, for instance, the doors of many healthcare organizations slammed shut the family and other essential partners in care early in the pandemic. You can understand why given the uncertainties and the overriding desire not to spread the virus. But since then, we've seen the risks and harm that blanket visitor restrictions can cause. Documented in formal research, as well as in the hearts of families, patients, of residents and caregivers. I think of a relative who died alone because their family weren't allowed to visit his long-term care home. And another who lost the ability to walk because her husband wasn't able to come in every day and help her maintain mobility. I'm sure that many on this call have stories too. So how can we adapt policies and practices to advance safe re-entry of essential care partners? The good news is that we now have evidence that with proper supports and education, Essential care partners are not significant sources of COVID-19 transmission. And we know that we can change policies like this at scale because we've done it before. Pre-pandemic, a sustained focus through the Better Together campaign and partnerships led to about three quarters of hospitals having accommodating visitor policies by January 2020. Now that did go down to zero in March, but the pendulum is already swinging back. Organizations interested in safely reintegrating, welcoming back and engaging essential care partners as part of care teams are joining together in Essential Together, 
This program gives access to learning bundles, peer-to-peer -peer exchanges, and coaching to help us on this journey. And if this is something that interests you, I encourage you to join us all, because it will take all of us, not just individual heroes, to spread and scale these and other proven practices. So let's assume we've got the right team, culture, and partnerships in place. It's so tempting to just jump in. But we also need to face the fact that actually not all ideas should spread everywhere. Some work amazingly well in a particular context, but are dependent on features unique to that environment. They will fail elsewhere. Other innovations worked well at one time, but are no longer optimal. And still others, some favorite ideas, just don't work as anticipated. Uh, for instance, West Virginia's approach of giving away guns as an incentive to get vaccinated would break any number of Canadian laws and would horrify most public health professionals I know here. Success depends on being able to contain or retire some innovations, just as it does on spreading and scaling those with more promise. A few years ago, I was talking to a prof whose expertise is in innovation, and he bluntly asked me, what makes you think you can pick the winners? So after looking at my shoes, you know, my answer was I wasn't sure I could. And that led me to a path of exploration to find evidence-informed ways of improving our odds. Now, I'd love you to join me in that deep dive if you're interested, but if you really want to get on to things, that evidence is being translated into practical tools you can pick up and go with. So, for example, thinking about whether a particular innovation will work for you, there's a readiness to receive assessment that builds on work originally done by Kaiser Permanente and has now been adapted to a Canadian context. Or, if you're thinking about which change initiative to champion, check out the readiness to spread assessment. Or want to make sure that your latest initiative doesn't fade away over time, that is where the long-term success tool comes in. And there's more. And if you're interested in exploring these or other tools, I posted a link to this deck on Twitter and it includes slides at the end with a bunch of links to opportunities and resources that you can access right away. And they can be leveraged practice by practice, organization by organization, or more broadly. So for instance, we partnered with Solutions for Kids in Pain to identify promising innovations that support virtual chronic pain prevention and management for children. And at the other end of the age spectrum with the Canadian Frailty Network to identify innovations for advancing frailty care in the community. Common elements of the frailty innovations identified are now rolling out as part of a primary care-based collaborative in seven provinces. And it does usually take a coordinated effort to embed new practices broadly, even if it's tempting to think that good ideas will just naturally spread. While implementation science is still relatively new, its insights can help to shorten the gap, to close it between what we know and what we do. Bottom line, it doesn't have to take 17 years to go from bench to bedside, which, by the way, is a bit of a fallacy all on its own, but not one I'm going to do a deep dive on this morning. Proven approaches such as improvement collaboratives, open innovation challenges, and policy labs, to name just a few, may spread, may spread and scale much more likely to happen. 
Just as one example, teams from seven provinces in the Department of National Defense joined forces in the Connected Medicine Collaborative to spread GP specialist e-consult innovations that originated in Ottawa and Vancouver. Pre-pandemic, in addition to speeding access to specialist advice, more than half of e-consults avoided face-to-face -face specialist visits, and two in five avoided an emergency department visit. And you can see why they've spread even further during the pandemic. In this case and many others, the benefits have been proven over and over in Canada and around the world. But ironically, we have work to do to spread and scale these implementation science approaches to build capacity for large-scale change, as well as to continue to expand our collective understanding of what works best for whom in what context. So last but not least, even having laid the foundation, thoughtfully assessed readiness, and leveraged improvement science insights to advance in innovation, sadly, many still get stuck on the way to scale. And it's tempting to think we just need to try harder to spend more money or to put more incentives in place. But the truth is what got you here rarely gets you there. It takes different approaches to attract early adopters than it does to be able to promise all patients, all healthcare providers, all regions of the country, excellence in care. It's a simple thought experiment. Suppose a kid in your life wanted a lucky penny. I'd be willing to bet that most of us could dig around and find one, even though they've been out of circulation in Canada for a while. Now suppose that you wanted 100 pennies to help that child learn to count. You're right, but still, if you reached out to friends and family, you could probably get 100 together. But suppose you wanted 10,000 pennies. I don't even think the size of our collective kitchen drunk drawers would contain that many pennies. However, pennies are still in circulation in the US, so maybe a friend there could go to the bank, get some rolls, and send them to you. The point is you need different strategies for the initial innovation, for early spread, and for scale. Something we're starting to see now with COVID vaccinations as focused efforts at reaching people who may not have signed up early start to ramp up. In some cases, it'll be about customized outreach or low-barrier, culturally safe clinics. In others, enabling structures or policies may help. Which is, well, global travel is likely to be a lot easier for those with proof of vaccination. Fundamentally, it's about making the right thing to do the easier thing to do. Which brings me full circle to where I started. The premise that everyone in Canada wants and deserves excellence in healthcare, and we're not there yet. Patient safety and high quality healthcare doesn't just happen, but together we can make it happen, including building back better and fairer as we enter the next stage of the pandemic. By setting aside old assumptions and pulling together to leverage what works to sustain, spread, and scale proven innovation. That's why Healthcare Excellence Canada was born earlier this year. We brought together the Canadian Patient Safety Institute and the Canadian Foundation for Healthcare Improvement so that the scale of the solutions we could bring and join in with could better match the scale of the challenges health systems face. To power more change together with you. 
And we intend and hope to do that with you in four ways. First, by finding and promoting the people who are working, the people and organizations who are working on thorny problems that don't yet have solutions, to connect them with each other and look to see what surfaces. Second, once we've got proven innovations to drive rapid adoption in ways that strengthen patient safety and all of the dimensions of healthcare access. Third, not just working innovation by innovation, but rather building capabilities and cultures that enable change and resilience. And last but not least, local teams can do amazing work, but so much easier if they're working in a policy and a structure context that does make that right thing to do easier to do. So that's where catalyzing policy change comes in. Excellence sits at the heart of our name for a reason. It's a standard we strive towards, a calling that demands action and results. A goal that we define together, cross boundaries and silos, focus on inclusion, working through the messiness and uncertainty of a global pandemic. Excellence is why we're so determined because we know it's what our partners, what you are reaching for every day and because we wanna be right there with you, joining forces for better care. And personally, because I don't want other boys and girls to have to wonder, as I did, why people they care about don't get the same quality of care. At the time, I couldn't do anything about it other than smuggling my great-grandmother's snacks. But now I can, and so can you. I hope that you'll join with us and others across the country who share the belief that everyone in Canada wants and deserves excellence in healthcare. That we're not there yet, but that we can and need to be even smarter about how we strive together for more. And to get the ball rolling, I invite you to grab a piece of paper, grab a pen, spend just a minute now to ask yourself, what's the single most important thing you could do by next Tuesday? make the old adage that Canada is a land of perpetual pilot projects fade into history. And once you've decided, write it down, because there's good evidence that tangible commitments are more likely to be followed through. And while you're doing that, I'm going to open up the chat so that we can start the Q&A part of our conversation. Thank you so much. So hopefully you've identified some things to focus on over the next week or so to, just to get us started, to get that momentum moving together. Um, because you know the pace of change has been incredibly rapid during the pandemic. And looking forward, we have the opportunity collectively to off-ramp the things that didn't work, to double down on the things that did, and to really reimagine care in areas where the pandemic has shone a spotlight on fundamental challenges or open doors to grow resilience. And I look forward to working with you together to that end. And now I'm gonna turn us to uh, some of the questions in the comments. And uh, I've just been scrolling up, so hopefully I haven't missed some along the way. Um, but there was a question um, around where do payment mechanisms and potential for profits come in when innovations are adopted? How does that relate to actual outcomes? Isn't there a risk of spreading innovations that only result in more revenues for the providers? So 
Thanks so much for that question. Neil, I'm not sure if that comes from you because your comment was next or if that's from somebody else. Anyway, whoever that's from. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we, we absolutely need to look at both the intended and unintended consequences of the innovation that we're aiming to spread and scale and have multiple measures that allow us to assess those as we move forward. Um, one of the approaches I think can be really helpful in addressing this particular issue is to focus on value-based healthcare. So the outcomes that matter to patients relative to costs across the full patient journey. And that just allows us to think differently rather than silo by silo, piece by piece about what's the overall value we're looking for. And if that's something you're interested in, um, love to follow up with you on that um, because there's, there's lots of work actually happening across Canada and uh, the potential for uh, much more to happen as well. Um, so just rolling down. Yep, absolutely. So comment about um, Trisha's work on uh, complex systems and um, how, do we, how do we not, it's not about forcing things, right? It's about laying the table. It's about setting the conditions for positive innovation to happen and keeping an eye on those unintended consequences too, so that we can absolutely help it happen and move forward. Uh, from William Hall, thanks so much for your question. Uh, what part do limited or scarce resources have to play in a land of pilot projects and creating that land? Could we leverage health economics to transform our healthcare resource allocation protocols to foster healthcare excellence and scale pilots to programs? Absolutely, I think we can. So, you know, it is, it is easier to find limited amounts of money to get started, although not always easy, I will say. Um, but I think that's where approaches like value-based healthcare come in, approaches like looking at um, how do we actually cut across silos and take a, a broader look at allocation of resources in a situation of scarcity. Um, so I have a health economics academic background and, and I think that's an important set of tools in the toolbox, not the only ones, but an important set um, and, and allows us to think differently about things as well. So if we're focused on that end value, that allows us to identify different solutions and potentially be able to move resources in different ways as well. Uh, Darren, should funding for all pilot projects contain a requirement to provide a plan to scale and sustain? Super interesting question. I do think that from the beginning, we need to be thinking about what comes next so that we're not just focused on that start to stop, um, but that we're looking forward. That said, we also need to be able to off-ramp the things that don't work. And so I think, yes, we need a plan to sustain and scale, we also need criteria to say, mm, this one didn't work out as we thought, or we need to adapt it so that it works differently. And we need, we need to take a different path. So not everything will be successful in the way that it was originally envisaged. And we need to take that in mind from the beginning as we look forward and plan for that assessment. Plan for the rapid change that allows us to be nimble and adapt to what we're learning and plan or how do we, yes, potentially move it forward more broadly, or 
how do we move off and try something different that will address the question if it didn't work out? Uh, let's see, next question. Um, and Matt, you might have to keep me honest on time here because uh, I'm looking at the questions less at the clock. Um, when you spread and scale a project, how do, we, how do you ensure the original goal or idea doesn't get diluted, especially when you inevitably have to involve other organizations or stakeholders who may take it in a different direction? So super important question, and that's something we focus a lot on at the spread scale of the work that we tend to do. So our goal at the spread scale is to say, not just does it work elsewhere, but how does it work elsewhere? Because there'll be elements of that innovation that if you adapt them in a way that takes away from the core of what, what made it successful, um, won't fly. You won't see the results. But you also have elements that if you don't adapt them to a different context, they're going to fail as well. So it's about finding that, that's the wrong word because it's not a single continuum. It's about finding that collection of what are the things you need to have um, fidelity to and where are the areas you need to adapt and thinking about that deliberately. Um, so I'm not sure who asked this question because the name doesn't say, um, but or the uh, chat doesn't say, but for the person who asked this question, I think you might be quite interested in the readiness to spread and the readiness to receive tools that help you to work through some of those questions in a structured way. And if you can do that together with the partners who you're involving, the stakeholders you're involving in that next step, then you can potentially come to a common understanding and then bring that back as you move forward. Um, why are you presenting this as binary? What works, what doesn't work? What about things that work for some patients under some conditions, but not others? Almost inevitably the case. Right, so if it felt like I was presenting at a binary, I apologize, because that was certainly not my intent. Um, what works for whom, in what context, under what circumstances, all of which can change, um, are really important considerations in thinking about how do we move towards excellence in care. It's never gonna be one size fits all, um, and, and we need to acknowledge that, and we need to build that into the work that we're doing. Oh, thank you, Christina. Appreciate that comment. Um, Philip, sometimes in healthcare, we're fearful of change. What's one or two things we can do at organizations, at meetings with leadership, to start a conversation, to try new things, experiment, knowing that there could possibly be success or failure? So important. So absolutely fundamentally important. Um, because it can be fear of change. It can also be fatigue with change, particularly right now when there's been so much change that has happened. One of the things I often find is that centering ourselves on why, and there's a bunch of different ways of doing that, can be super helpful. It's also another reason why one of the foundations of everything we do is engagement and partnership with those with lived experience. Um, to make sure that we're holding true to what matters at the end of the day. So I don't know that there's a magic recipe, Philip, but that sort of coming back to the core, coming back to values, coming back to the challenge, and then working through what are the possibilities. And sometimes it does help as well to have that common understanding of here's what we're testing and here's how we'll know 
what the results were. So how will you know if a change is making a difference is an important question you embed from the beginning and throughout any work we do in this area. And that difference can both be positive in the ways that we expected it to be positive, to the point of the last question, positive for some and not for others, or it can have unexpected consequences. And I usually find if we go in with an understanding of that and a plan to monitor that and be able to adapt and be nimble, much more possible to get commitment to go forward together. Uh, so moving down, I'm encouraged that healthcare improvement and collaboration across broad geographies is now the norm. Me too. Uh, virtual engagement with previously untapped stakeholders might be the way forward, especially so for marginalized and underserved patient populations. You know, we've learned a ton, haven't we, over the last few months. And while there are absolutely times when I desperately want to be with other people and some things would just be so much easier if we could all get in a room and break bread together, there are other things that have just opened up possibilities for different types of conversations for different ways of having conversations that have the ability to be more broadly inclusive, um, that have the ability to balance um, conversations in a different way, um, that recognize that not everyone can participate in a conversation that's nine to five or in a particular place and, and open up some of those opportunities as well. So, I do think you know that's a good example of what I was saying towards the end of there are some innovations that came up during the pandemic that may, may have been forced on us, but that have worked out really well and we wanna double down on and continue to evolve as we go forward. Well, uh, Kirk, what are examples of supports for primary care? Um, so, so many different ones, uh, possibilities. Oh, and there's also questions in Q&A. Sorry about that, folks. I've been only looking at the chat. I will come back to the Q&A in a sec. Um, but let me get to Kirk's question first. Examples of supports for primary care. So just to give you a few, um, work we're doing now on advancing frailty care in the community is focused uh, with primary care practices. Um, and that includes both large and small practices. Um, also work around um, improving care for people in community. Um, who are living with dementia. So series of tools and resources there. Um, number of uh, different programs that are rolling out in different spaces around uh, supporting virtual primary care and adaptations there. And many of the broader tools as well are applicable to any context. So readiness to spread, readiness to receive. So I'd encourage you to think, oh, and connected medicine that I talked about earlier as well, another good example. So I'd encourage you to think about what are the problems that are most important to you? And then feel free to get in touch if you're interested in what I might know about resources that might be available. Uh, but equally, this is a whole community. There's lots of people who know about things that I don't know about. So hopefully together, we can find um, some connection points that may be interesting for you. Okay, I promise to go over to the Q&A. I'll do that now. Uh, so from Tanya, thanks Tanya, good to see your name on the screen. Um, can you talk about the culture change that's required to support innovation? So it is a fundamental culture change. And, and we, know, we know a lot 
about what kinds of um, perspectives are embraced by leading health systems around the world. So deep engagement, deep partnership with people with lived experience is one example. Um, culturally safe environments that enable everyone feel safe coming to the table and participating in that process. Environments that have um, engagement at all levels. So absolutely strong leadership support and a strong understanding that um, we need to foster innovation in ways that are tied to the values, to the core objectives, to the purpose of the organizations we work for, and that embed that support and capacity and tools um, across the organization would be just some examples. Um, there are more, Ross Baker's actually done, Ross Baker and Jean-Louis Denis have actually done some really interesting work in that area if you're interested in following up further. Rob, oh, such a good point. Why do you think the other public health emergency is never mentioned? Your daily reports on COVID and month, often monthly statistics on opioid overdose deaths, but nobody seems to talk about the toll of preventable deaths due to breakdowns in the way healthcare is provided across the country. So, you know, I think, I think it's a really interesting question, Rob. Why, why do we have the spotlight shone on some things and not others? Um, many of the challenges that have um, gotten focused during the pandemic are not new. So there've been challenges in long-term care. There've been challenges in terms of patient safety. There've been other challenges for a long time. And I think here's an example, and that's just come on the screen. So I'm assuming now's my time to wrap up, but I'd love to continue this conversation with you, Rob, in another way and another time. But here's a good example where we can't turn away. And we have to keep bringing all of the challenges that we face forward, because that's the only way that we're gonna to move towards healthcare excellence. So with that, Matt, I'm assuming that it's back to you. Um, thank you so much. Uh, it, it, it's not easy to be engaging when you're presenting virtually. Um, I thought you did an absolutely fantastic job this morning. Uh, congratulations to you. Um, I did mention that uh, I would introduce or let everybody know who they can expect to hear from after the summer. So very quickly in uh, September of 2021, uh, we will be joined by Quam McKenzie, who's the president and CEO for the Wellesley Institute. In October, uh, it will be Neil Fraser, who's the president for Medtronic Canada. In November, we will have Vivek Goel, who is the chair of the Pandemic Expert Advisory Group for the Government of Canada. Uh, the weather is getting much warmer here um, and across Canada. Everybody has uh, been stuck inside or working extra hard. So if you really, if you have the opportunity to step away and decompress, do it. Uh, enjoy your summer and we'll see everybody in September. Thank you so much. Have a fantastic day. Bye-bye.